Well, so Matthew 22, 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. I want to invite Jared, Pastor Jared up, who will be preaching to us and, and teaching us through this passage. Father, thank you for this parable this morning, for what it shows us about your character and about our character too. I pray that you would speak through Jared, fill him with your spirit, fill us with your spirit, that we would understand, and that it would not just be words we hear on a Sunday morning that we forget about by lunchtime today. I pray that these words would change our hearts, would lead us to follow you, to want to follow you, to, to understand how good you are. Thanks for loving us and pursuing us, and we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jason. Good morning. Go ahead and have a seat. I'm grateful that you are here with us this morning. Um, I just want to say just a, a personal note real quick. Thank you for those of you who have been uh, praying for our family and for my father and, and my mom and uh, Meredith and I. Uh, my dad has uh, had a long, uh, just troubling health journey since June. It really escalated in October and he was in the hospital for nearly uh, three months, and then we brought him home at the beginning of January uh, to initiate hospice, and so we're kind of on that trajectory right now, and today is his 72nd birthday, and we didn't expect to have it with him. So after here, we're going to go and celebrate with my dad. One of his requests was Neapolitan ice cream. So that's what we're going to do this morning. That's one of the reasons that I've been out of pocket for the last four weeks or so. We just didn't know how it would come and when it would come. And, and, uh, and, and so I'll be in and out uh, until he moves on and meets Jesus face to face. Um, there are, I recognize, a number of us that are suffering loss, that are suffering heartache, that are in troubling and trying times, period. So as a family, there's a lot of that going on in this church community. So I want to communicate to you uh, that you, you're, you're, you're just, you're not alone. You are absolutely not alone. The closer that Jesus gets to his cross the more intentionally he uses his time. 
We're recognizing that in our own family life. As the closer my father gets to meeting Jesus face to face, the more intentionally we use our time. Jesus' speech always makes people think. And we're going to see that this morning. We have Matthew journals around the room on the right and left. If you don't have one of these Matthew journals, go ahead and raise your hand. And these are free, no strings attached. They've got the words of the text on the left page and a blank lined page on the right. And you can just follow, around, follow along and, and make notes. The closer that Jesus gets to his cross, the more intentionally he uses his time. And his speech always, always, always makes people think. And so today... We are going to hear Jesus speak in a parable that is spoken to the religious establishment of his day. And Jesus is in full confrontation mode. He's using his time very, very, very intentionally. He's challenging and he's warning Israel's leaders. And so what he does, Jason read, he offers this parable about a wedding feast where the meaning in this parable, it's not opaque. It's very, very clear. The symbolism is clear. What the players in this parable represent become very clear. Parables are one of Jesus's favorite ways to teach. About a third of his teaching comes in the form of parables. And if you're unfamiliar with what a parable is, it's a, it's a simple kind of earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. They typically, a parable will typically provide just a single idea, a bit of a, a hook to hang truth on. So they're, they're memorable by design. And parables are designed to convey lessons and to convey principles and to convey truth. They're not really designed to mirror real life. So there are times as you're reading these parables that they seem a bit fantastical. You're kind of like, well, are things really like that? Well, no, they're not. The, the point is, is that a point is being made. And so this parable that Jesus speaks to the religious rulers of his day, it highlights something. This parable in particular this morning in chapter 22 is highlighting the goodness and the patience of God for the undeserving. I don't want us to miss that. But it's also highlighting something else. It's highlighting the danger of indifference and apathy, the danger of hostility, the danger of self-righteousness. Jesus, through this parable, he will offer a way forward for Israel's leaders if they have the, the ears to hear. And we'll see whether or not they do in a, in a moment. But it's important for us to remember that this parable is actually spoken to Israel's leaders. It's spoken to, they're in a theocracy. It's spoken to this mix of people who are leading Israel, the Pharisees, these civic leaders, these political leaders, these religious leaders. This parable is not aimed at the common people of the day. Jesus is not aiming this parable at the common people. However, the ruling class, these Rulers, whether political, civil, or theological, or religious, they're people, and common people are people, so they share something in common, and that thing that we share in common is our humanity. So the tendencies that are alive and well in the Pharisees are also alive and well in the common people, and because we're also people, the tendencies that are alive and well in the Pharisees also are, they exist in us as well. So Wise is the person 
who can learn from another person's mistakes. Let's just take a moment and let that settle in. Wise is the person who can learn from another person's mistakes. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to get into the context, then we're going to get into the parable, and then we're going to draw out a few lessons, and we're going to grow in wisdom together as a family. Beginning in uh, chapter 21, so we're in Matthew chapter 22. Beginning in chapter 21, Jesus' disciple Matthew, he introduces us, he introduces the reader to this, very, this last week of Jesus' life. We call it Holy Week, or we call it Passion Week. Passio is a Latin word that means to suffer. And so this last week of Jesus' life is about his suffering. And Matthew devotes a full eight chapters to the very last seven days of Jesus' life. So he's devoting over a quarter of this entire gospel and record of Jesus' life just to the last seven days. It's incredibly important. Last week, Trevor thought, he, he taught, a few weeks ago actually, Trevor taught through the triumphal entry where Jesus enters into Jerusalem with the cross, his actual murder in view, just seven days out. He's a week away from his crucifixion at the hands of the Roman soldiers, but at the request of the Jewish leaders. And we saw in chapter 21 that crowds are gathering around Jesus and they're doing so, um, shouting this word, Hosanna. It's a word that means save, please. But also in the crowds are his enemies. And so we're seeing this mix of like acclaim and worship and also conflict that's escalating before him. And Jesus, intentionally using his time, pointedly began to confront Israel's leaders, particularly their corruption. He had no time anymore for it. And so what we saw was a Jesus who is altogether different from every worldly king because he's not like the other kings of this world. He's human, yes, he's like us, but he's also God. So he's God and man, similar, but in another category altogether. Last week, Rick Friesen taught through the remainder of chapter 21. It was a pretty large chunk with saying after saying and teaching after teaching of Jesus. And we saw that Jesus of Nazareth has this wise and supernatural authority over every established leader. And he confronts Israel's leaders on this point that their good behavior and their good belief doesn't earn them the favor of God. Those are good things, but not enough to earn them the favor of God because a person cannot work or will themselves into righteousness, into rightness with God. Apart from God's radical intervention, righteousness and therefore salvation is actually impossible for us. So what does God want then of us? What does he want for us? What God wants is for people to give up. He wants us to give up. He wants us to throw ourselves on his mercy with the empty hands of our total dependence and our need. He wants us to return to him in a posture of trust, in a posture of authentic dependence, rather than our skepticism and our doubt, and our ungodly fear, and our unbelief, and our distrust, and our self-reliance. And so the message of the scriptures are really clear. Repentance means to trust God again. 
to return to him, to change our minds about who he is. We can trust him. And so Jesus in this parable, what he's doing is he's mercifully challenging and he's mercifully inviting the religious leaders to repent and to see him as the Messiah that he really is, the one that they've been looking for this whole time. And so it's in the mix of that conflict that we find ourselves today with this parable of the wedding feast. There's a couple of things that I want us to see in this parable. I say this a lot. Uh, There's a lot more to see in the parable, and so that's your work to tease it out. But there are a couple of big, big picture things in view that I want us to see. Number one, I want us to see that the king's invitation is the greatest honor, and it's urgent. And number two, I want us to see that the right response to the king's invitation is of first importance. And so we'll look at those points, and then we're going to draw out some implications. Why? So that we can grow in wisdom together. Number one, the king's invitation is the greatest honor, and it's urgent. Look at verses one through six. Jesus, he says, he starts out this parable, and he says, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So stop right there just for a moment and consider who in this parable is the king and who is the son. Consider in the biblical narrative who this might be. Remember, Jesus is using his time very intentionally, and he's saying that in this parable, it's compared to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is compared to it. So the symbolism should be pretty clear for us, according to the biblical narrative, that the king and the son represent likely the father and Jesus, his son. Let's bring it down, though, for a moment to our human level. This parable, it doesn't say, but we can infer that the the son in the parable is the crown prince. He is a very important person in the kingdom. Likely, he's next in line to the throne. Have you seen this anywhere in your news feeds? Like, are there princes that have recently had Netflix specials with Oprah made about them? We've seen something that's pretty similar to this, right? Did anybody tune into those? I tuned in, not the Netflix special, but Prince William and Kate's wedding. I tuned into some of the footage of that. That was back in 2011. And then Prince Harry married Meghan. I don't know when that was, but it was a handful of years ago. Let's just, for a moment, let's do a a bit of a thought experiment. Let's say, because she was alive at the time of both of these princes' weddings, let's say that Queen Elizabeth II, the Queen Mother, personally sent you an invite to Prince William and Kate Middleton's wedding. It arrived in your inbox, your mailbox in Idaho. You don't even know them. You don't know why you are invited, but you do a little bit of checking and and it comes to find out these invites, this invite from the queen to the prince's wedding is authentic. Would you consider going? I didn't hear that, but somebody said I'm there. Is that what it was? Yeah. Right? Like, I don't... uh, So my grandmother was born and raised in England, and I don't have a lot of interest in the royals. I've never watched an episode of Downton Abbey. What? Somebody says. And I don't plan to. But I bet... I do have some special socks that have the Union Jack on them, just if you're wondering. That's like the extent that my interest in... um, 
in England goes. But I'll, I'll bet that the majority of us, were we to receive that invitation, and I would include myself in that, would have a sudden interest in this event, in this event and would consider going. And probably like checking plane tickets, lodging, food, like who can I borrow money from because I don't have enough cash because that's going to be really expensive. But it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And what we would realize pretty quickly is that the invitation wouldn't last forever. So there would be an RSVP deadline. And if there were a deadline, we had better mind it. So in this parable given by Jesus, uh, Jesus says that this king sent wedding invitations and called on a specific list of guests. These would have been people in his kingdom that would have interacted with him, his son, the royal party, the whole, like, he, the king would have had specific names and faces in view. And these people were called on by the king for the most significant or one of the most significant moments in this crown prince's life. They were afforded a great honor, but there's this plot twist, and Jesus says in the parable, but they wouldn't come. In a monarchy, when the king calls on you, you come, particularly in ancient monarchies. You would reschedule your appointments, and you would get there. But what we're told in the parable is that they're unwilling to go. And what we keep seeing from Jesus, though, is that this king is, he's generous. And the commentators, as I've been reading on this, they say that there are probably historical reasons for sending out a second invite. So we could think of these invites as one is a save the date, and another one is an invite. But he's got these same servants in mind, and so he, remi- he sends his servants back to them, and he reminds them again, hey, we've got prime rib, all the fixings are ready, like the young unmarried maidens are going to be looking their best, the young men are going to be looking their, ma- their best, they're looking to dance, they're looking to meet each other, the food is going to be incredible, the drink is going to be extraordinary, come and feast, come to my son's wedding. But what we're told in the parable is those invited still paid no attention. That's the language. They literally did not care. They were indifferent to the king and they were apathetic to the king's son. And so what they did, we're told, is that they kept their schedules. Some went to their businesses. Some went to their farms. They cared more for the ordinary elements of their lives than the extraordinary summons of this ancient king. And we're told as Jesus unfolds this parable that some of the invitees, they actually put their hands on the king's servants. They badly mistreated them and they killed them. So we see that they're not just indifferent to the king, unwilling and apathetic, but they're actually hostile to the king. They're hostile to his son. They're hostile to this kingdom. How do you think the king should respond? How would you respond if you were in the king's shoes. That's what these parables are meant to do. They're meant to transport us into the story and help us to see ourselves as players in the story. The king is offended, rightfully, disrespected. Rather than celebrating, now the king has justice on his mind. He's righteously angry. We're told by Jesus in this parable that the king sends his troops to deliver this due penalty for political insubordination and for rebellion. 
and he destroys these murderers who murdered his servants, and then he destroyed their city and he burned it. Uh, most, if you've got a study Bible or you've got, you read any commentaries on this, most of the commentators are saying that Jesus could actually be foreshadowing the destruction of Jerusalem that's going to happen in just about 35 to 40 years as this Roman general named Titus sieges Jerusalem in AD 70, sacks the temple, destroys the temple, and burns out the city of Jerusalem. The people in this parable, they refuse to honor the king's son, and now they're under the judgment of the king, which means there's been a significant shift. They're no longer recipients of the king's generosity. They're no longer included in the feast. These recipients of the invitations initially, they did what they most wanted to do, and what they did was make themselves worthless and unworthy. And so they reject the king, and now we see that the king is rejecting them. This king's patience is running out. So what now in the parable? We've got a destroyed city, we've got a lot of pain and grief, and we've still got an empty wedding feast. But the king's son and the king himself are still worthy to have every seat filled. So we see this, there's yet another in Jesus' parable plot twist where this guest list shifts. We need to remember, this is a parable from Jesus about what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven has a very worthy king. The kingdom of heaven has a very worthy son. And now the kingdom of heaven has a very surprising guest list. The invite list is no longer narrow, but it actually grows wide. And so we see point number two here. The right response to the king's invitation is of first importance. This king, he tells his servants, he says, go out to the main roads. Go out to the people and invite all that you can find. Invite both the worthy, invite the unworthy, invite the good, invite the bad. This wedding will go on. Why? Because the king and his son are worthy to be celebrated. And this parable of the wedding feast is connected to several passages that Rick walked us through last week. There's this continuing theme where Jesus is getting more and more confrontational. He's getting more and more pointed in his words. He's getting more direct with the religious establishment of Israel. And in those parables that Rick walked us through last week, Jesus highlighted that a different and an unexpected group of people would actually take the place of those who reject God. Remember, Jesus said the tax collectors and the prostitutes would enter the kingdom of God before the religious leaders would, and this was unthinkable to these religious leaders. Why? Why would Jesus say that? Because these religious rulers were paying lip service to God. They look nice on the outside, but inside they are vile and they're malicious. And then as Rick taught, we were told a parable about these um, tenants that are working a, a field, a, a vineyard, and they're not producing fruit for the owner of the vineyard, but instead they're actually violently opposing this vineyard owner. So the vineyard owner sends his servants to, to talk to these tenants of the field, but the tenants of the field seize the servants, symbolized as the prophets that God was sending to the people of Israel, and they murdered them. And so the owner of this vineyard in the parable said that this vineyard would be taken, it would be given to other tenants who would respect him and produce 
fruit. And now Jesus is teaching in this parable in Matthew chapter 22, the parable of the wedding feast, that the king will actually welcome people to his son's wedding feast, who the religious establishment would actually see as vile. They would hate the people who, would, who were being welcomed into the wedding feast. The Gentiles, those who are of non-Israelite ancestry, the prostitutes, the tax collectors who were Israeli people but who had turned on their people and were now collecting taxes on behalf of the Romans from the Israelites. These religious rulers, these priests, these scribes, these elders of the people, they've been entrusted with the kingdom of God, but now they have forfeited their place. They've rejected the king and now the king has rejected them. Therefore, the kingdom will be taken from them and given to other people. Look at verse 11 in chapter 22. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who didn't actually have a wedding garment. And he said to the man, he said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the, and the man was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. Get him out of here. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. So this king, this wedding hall is filled and, and this with unexpected guests. And this king comes in to look at them and to, to view them, but he finds a man there without the proper attire. And so acquiring, he asks this guy, hey, how did you get into the feast? And this guy, rather this man, rather than saying that he rushed in and he dropped everything in order to be there and he just kind of missed the garment giveaway, or rather than like falling down on his knees and begging for mercy from the king and the right to be there, the text tells us that this guy was actually speechless, which means he had no defense, he had no good reason to be there. In other words, this, this man had come into this wedding feast on his own terms, he had determined that he was acceptable as he was. He didn't need to answer to the king. He didn't need to come in on the terms of the king. And what we learn is that he wasn't clothed by the garments provided by the king. There's an early church father named Augustine. Uh, he lived in northern Africa. He was the bishop of Hippo, and he, uh, he, he's an extraordinary thinker, and he's really influenced the West and Christian thought and Christendom uh, probably more than any single person. And in his commentaries on Matthew chapter 22, Augustine is convinced that this issue of the proper clothing at the feast was actually about, the, it was symboli symbolizing, symbolic of the righteousness of Christ, these wedding guests being clothed with the clothing of the king. It was passive. They took what the king gave them. They shed their old filthy clothes or their old work clothes or common clothes, and they put on this special attire provided to them by the king. The, the meaning in view then is if we're not clothed in the righteousness, if we're not covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we won't be welcomed to the wedding feast. Why? Because we cannot come to God on our own terms. We can't come to God on our own merit. We can't make ourselves righteous. We can't make ourselves clean. The standard for the kingdom of heaven and for meeting God face to face is Christ-like perfection. And unless the perfect Christ gives us his cleansing, gives us his righteousness, 
we have no right to be there. This parable of the wedding feast likely is pointing to the end of the age. It's pointing to this culmination, the end times, that this future far-out historical event, which is called the, the marriage feast of the Lamb in, uh, in Revelation chapter 19. And in Revelation 19, Jesus' apostle, this guy named John, he was given a vision of this marriage supper, marriage feast of the Lamb. The la- Jesus is the Lamb of God. And this is what John wrote about it. John wrote in Revelation 19, 6 through 9, he said, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. It was like the roar of many waters. It was like the sound of mighty peals of thunder that are crying out. So imagine massive crowds, soccer stadiums and beyond, you know, one on top of the other, just voice after voice crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. These are the unified voices of worshipers. Let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride, that is the church, has made herself ready. And then there are these words. It was granted to her, to the bride, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Look at the passivity in this statement. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints that are coming out of the righteousness that God has given them. And John wrote, the angel said to me, write this down, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You see the language, it's similar to the parable. Blessed are those who are invited to this feast at the end of the age where multitudes upon multitudes of people are rejoicing in the goodness of God. And this angel said to John, these are the true words of God. The Bible is, is ripe with this theme of what is dirty being cleansed by God. It's all over the scriptures. You could think baptism. You could think ritual washing. The Bible also is ripe with a, a similar illustration of having filthy clothing exchanged for clean clothing as symbolic of God taking our shame, taking our sin, and exchanging it with something, a righteousness and a purity and a holiness that he himself gives us. So it's got in view this righteous standing of Jesus Christ and his work actually covering us. And so this picture in this parable is showing us that if we're to join the king in his feast, we must be cleansed and we must be clothed according to his standard. And so we respond to his invite with empty hands, and he makes us ready with his work and his righteousness and his goodness. 700 years before Jesus lived in the flesh as, a, as, as human, um, Isaiah, this prophet, he, he would write in Isaiah 64 verse 6, Speaking of the people of Israel and of humanity in general, we have all, by walking away from God, by doing what is right in our own eyes, become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. There's the theme. If we come on our own merit to God, this is what we bring. Polluted garments. But if God covers us with his righteousness, Isaiah writes, 
I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for, look at the passivity here, he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. This is not something that we are doing for ourselves. This is something that Almighty God is doing for us through the life of his son. There's also this account in this minor prophet at the end of your Old Testament named Zechariah, where there's this temple priest. He's a guy named Joshua. He's kind of a random guy. He's not the Joshua in the, uh, the fifth book of your Old Testament, but he's a different Joshua. He's a temple priest, and he stood before the Lord clothed with filthy garments. And we read in Zechariah chapter 3, that this angel of the Lord, maybe this is what's called, theologians call this a Christophany, where in the Old Testament, there's often these appearances of the angel of the Lord speaking authoritatively, proclaiming the words of Almighty God. Like many theologians believe that the angel of the Lord is actually Christ himself appearing in power before people in the Old Testament. But this is what happens. This angel of the Lord removed these filthy garments from this priest and said, quote, behold, I have taken your iniquity or your sin away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So there's this idea in play of a great exchange, taking filthiness and then giving righteousness in place. This illegitimate man in the wedding feast, he came into the wedding feast of his own merit, his own standard. He didn't come in before Jesus with authentic gratitude and humility. And therefore, this king, as he sees him, not clothed like the other guests, commanded that this guy be removed. And the king says, bind him and cast him into the outer darkness where there's weeping and where there is regret and where there's the grinding teeth of misery, which is a description of what judgment will be like for those who reject the king's invitation and refused to honor his son. It's a serious warning. You can feel it. And Jesus finishes this parable saying, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are invited, but few will come. This statement, it drips with what theologians call the doctrine of election. It, it, it says that many will hear with their ears this outward call of the gospel, that God the Son has lived in place of fallen humanity and has given his life as a ransom for many and has gone to the cross as the perfect lamb of God, sacrificing himself. All of our sin is against God, so it's only God that can forgive our sin. And God himself has come and given himself in place of you and you and you and you and me and all of us. And our response to him is to say, I believe. Jesus went to the cross. He was killed by the Romans and the Israelites at their request. He was in the grave for three days, but the power of God raised Jesus to life, showing that he has the power over death and over hell and over Satan and over everything that comes against God himself. And anyone who believes that, who takes hold of that in faith, shall be saved. That's what the scriptures teach. Many people hear that But not everyone hears that and heeds it inwardly. And so the question for us is, do we hear that gospel? Do we cling to that gospel as our only hope? So when we meet God face to face, we fall to the ground in humility. And we point at the son and said, 
He says that I can come. He says that we can be here. He is my only hope. We don't come with, look at all the things I've done, the rap sheet, my resume saying, this is what I bring. We don't come with any of that. We come with the work of the Son on our behalf. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. In this parable, here's where I'll close, we see four categories of response. We see those who are indifferent, those who are hostile, those who are self-righteous, and those who respond humbly. Those who are indifferent. This is the person who just doesn't really care. It's the person who's apathetic. It's the person who the story of God doesn't move them. It's just one thing among many. Could be true, maybe not. I don't trust it. I don't really believe it. I got a list of other things that I want to be about in my life, whether it's work or hobby or play or a relationship or my kids or whatever it is. In this parable, Jesus is graciously inviting and warning indifferent and apathetic people. Is this you? Is this your posture toward Jesus? Is this your posture toward God? God is patient with you. You're still here. You're still hearing. And the reality is that the patience will eventually run out. There's also those who are hostile. They just hate God. They're angry with him. They're functionally rejecting him. I don't know if that's where you find yourself, But God is patient with you. He's patient with people who hate him, who raise the middle finger at him, who seek to destroy his church. He's actually patient with them. They're still alive. They still have shelter. They still have water. They still have food. They still have relationships. They still have a job, maybe. He's patient. This is called common grace. But his patience will run out. His patience will run out. There's a third category, those who come on the basis of their self-righteousness. Perhaps you have a view of God that he'll accept you because of your obedience. He'll accept you because of your church work, because of the checks that you cut, because of the Bible knowledge that you have. Maybe you have this kind of under, you wouldn't really, you're too clever to say it with your lips, but you got this driving belief in the gut that your life is so well-ordered that, of course, God will accept you. I got my stuff together. I'm with the right political party. I'm on the right side of history. God will accept me. If you or I come on the basis of any of our own merit, you and I have rejected the righteousness of Jesus that he offers us through his perfect work, and we stink in his nostrils. We offend him. We march into the wedding hall in polluted and stained garments. And yet, he's patient. We're still here. We're still hearing. There's an invitation being extended, but his patience will run out. And there's a fourth way to enter the wedding feast. It's to respond humbly to God on his terms wearing and relying on nothing but the righteousness of his son who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
because of what he's done to us, because of what he's doing through us, we're zealous for good works. We don't see our good works as justifying us. We see our good works as a fruit of the justification that God has already given us, the righteousness that he's already extended us. Those who respond humbly to God's invitation on God's terms will not only be welcomed to the wedding feast, but will live forever in the kingdom of God and in the kingdom of his son, secure and loved and cared for. He is patient with us and his patience will never run out. Pray with me. Father, help us to trust this. Help us to hear the voice of your spirit speaking to us naming the places and the ways in our thoughts and in our lives that we need to give up. We need to throw ourselves on your mercy. Lord Jesus, thank you that your mercy extends to the undeserving. Of course it does, because you are that good. Help us humble ourselves before you and follow you all of the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.